All right, the Apostle Paul here in this letter, as he does in many other letters, he just keeps building upon what he started with. And um, he, of course, as we've mentioned, I'm not going to review it tonight, um, but he's dealing with the Colossian heresy, which was a form of Gnosticism. And um, he's really, after introducing uh, himself and after building up the uh, Colossian brethren there, he begins... And a, a thing that that some people even think was a hymn in an early church. It was so beautiful uh, about Jesus Christ. And as we mentioned earlier, this section of Scripture is so very important when it comes to uh, attacking the Gnostics there in the church because they had a view that was totally wrong about Jesus Christ. But he's going to settle the issue uh, once and for all about Jesus Christ and will continue on this theme throughout the book of, of Colossians but he really, really makes some very important things, important statements about Jesus Christ that we can all learn from. And of course, this is all piggybacked on the verse, verse 14, about in him or in whom that we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. So he begins this section dealing with the fact that it's Jesus Christ is the one that we're, through whom we're saved. Then, as I said, he starts building on this. And then we saw verse 15 last week, where now he makes the very bold statement, which is a direct contradiction of what the Gnostics believe. And he says, who is the image or the exact um, image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. And, of course, we made mention of the fact that um, he is the visible of that which is invisible, and that's the point that he's making. And, of course, we even talked about how that Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So if you want to know what God looks like, you look at Jesus Christ and, and how he acts and his attributes. And then we spent some time talking about how that he was the firstborn of every creature. And what did we decide that meant? Just as a quick review. Above all, he has the ultimate preeminence. He has the highest rank. This does not mean that he is born uh, or he was created. In fact, it can't mean that because what he's going to say the next couple of verses, that would just be a contradiction. You can't be born if you weren't created, and uh, you can't be created if you're the one that created everything. And so he is laying this groundwork down. And that's the reason why we get to verse 16, where we're going to pick up tonight, where he begins verse 16 with the word, for. And he's basically answering the question that he presented in verse 15 when he says that Jesus Christ is the duplicate of the invisible God. He is the preeminent one or the firstborn of every cre creature. And here is the reason why. That's why we have that word for in the Greek. He's given us an expl explanation now of why he is the pre preeminent one or the firstborn of all creation. Here's the reason why. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. This is why he is the firstborn of creation or the rank of the highest rank of creation over the preeminent one over creation because what he says in this verse is Christ did what? He created everything. 
The reason why he is the preeminent one and the firstborn of all things, he's the one that created all things. And that would certainly make you the one in charge if you're the one that made everything happen. Um, The word for created there is an interesting Greek word. It's a word that means bringing into existence from nothing. Uh, doesn't mean he took something and, like a potter and got some clay and molded it into something pretty. Or he got two pieces of some bread and peanut butter and jelly and made a sandwich. Those are things brought together to make something. But he created out of nothing. It's a very special Greek word there. that means to create out of nothing. And so uh, he is the... the the firstborn of creation, because he is the one that brought it to pass through nothing. And um, Paul almost overemphasizes in this verse the totality of every single thing that exists. Jesus Christ created it. Um, It's interesting, in the King James it says, For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, but I bet somebody has something different for the word heaven there. Is there maybe an S on the end of heaven? All right. And that, I thought it was in the NIV. Maybe it's in a different translation. But in the original language, the heavens is plural. It's not singular. So I thought the NIV had corrected that, but maybe they didn't. The point that's being made, though, is that everything that are in the heavens were created by Jesus and everything on earth was created by Jesus. Uh, You read heaven, and you think about the fact where God resides, but that's not where he created. He created this heavenly realm that we look at, all the stars, the universe, everything, uh, both from the standpoint of being above the earth and everything that's on the earth, Jesus Christ created it all. Uh, when, When Paul says all things, he literally means all things. He goes on, and to emphasize that, after making this uh, dichotomy of the heavens and the earth, and you think that would cover everything, just to be safe, what does he go on and say? He says he created everything that is visible and invisible. Now, the things that we see, of course, are visible, and so that means everything that we can behold with the eye, what is Paul saying? Jesus has made it. But he's also saying that everything that the eye can't see, he created. Now, what in the world would he be driving at? What is invisible that that Christ would have created? Absolutely. Uh, Anything in the realm of creation that has to do with creation that we can't see, um, he created. Uh, Flo? All right, the air. Uh, We can't see the air, but we know it's there, and we care that the air is there, right? You can make a poem out of that. We care that the air is there. Um, And and certainly, he created all that. But I want you to think about something. Has he used this word invisible before? Since we've been talking just a few moments ago? How, Mike? Right. He is the image of the invisible God. Now... Don't know for sure, but he might be making a play on words here. Why can we not see God? Why is he an invisible God? Because he's a spirit. So Paul may be making a play on words here saying, everything in the spirit realm that you can't see, and that goes back to what Austin was saying there, 
Even everything in the spirit realm, that course, quote unquote, is not God. He's not saying he created God, but he wants them to think about the spirit realm. He just made the point that God is invisible because he's a spirit. So now he says everything that is visible or material, matter, see what he's doing? And everything that is invisible in the spirit realm, Christ created it all. Now, thinking about the Gnostics again and how they had all these different labels with all these different um, uh, spirits and angels and, and these demigods and everything working their way up to God, basically what Paul says, I don't care who they are, Jesus Christ created them. Whatever kind of weird view you're going to hold on to about where these different people came, where these different things came from, you can hold that view, but let me tell you right now, if there is such a thing, Christ is the one who created it. And these angels that you're worshiping, angels are created beings. Why in the world would you want to worship an angel over Jesus Christ when he's the one that created them, is the point that he's making. Now, Karen, do you have a point, or are you just looking at wave? All right, but it means still your thunder there. But here's something else he's saying in this statement that we sometimes miss. When he says that everything that was created, and he over, he, he's really emphasizing this when, as Austin's already brought out, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him. And by the way, if you go pull a commentary and look up these different words, in these commentaries, they'll tell you that Paul is basically just saying the same thing. He's just overemphasizing it for sake, that there's no exception to the rule. Every single thing was created by Jesus Christ. So all things were created by Jesus Christ. That's what Paul says, right? What does Genesis 1-1 say, though? In the beginning, God. All right. Now, look what Paul's done here. What does he emphasize to the Gnostics once again? Jesus is God. Remember, the Gnostics believed that Jesus wasn't a God because there's no way in the world he could have been God because he, he became manner, matter. He became physical, and physical and spiritual can't mix. Matter's totally evil. Spirit's totally good. They can't come together. Well, two different times here. Now, he's already made the point, blending it all together, building it all up. He says, first of all, Jesus Christ is the direct image of God. He is the visible of the invisible. And then he turns around and says, not only is he God, but he is the God that created everything. Taking it, going all the way back to Genesis 1.1. Christ was the instrument through which God used, evidently, to create the world. God, of course, he says, let us make man in our image. The Godhead is there, but obviously from this verse here, it's Jesus Christ that was the one who was the creative force behind it. Because it goes on and says at the very end of the verse, once again, he's using this phrase again, all things, there's no exception to this, all things were created by him. But notice how he finishes the verse though. And this will kind of blow your mind just a little bit. But not only were all things created by him, but every single thing he created was created for him. Well, let's ponder that just a moment. What in the world does that mean? That everything, 
If everything was created, according to this verse, if everything was created by him, that's true. Then the next thing he says is true, that every single thing was created, was created for him. Now tell me what that means. Help me out there a little bit. And what you're saying is correct. Obviously, if everything was created by him, everything was created for him, then he has the preeminence. He's the firstborn of everything. Obviously, that's exactly the point that's being made. But yet there's still the idea that everything that we have that has ever existed since Genesis 1-1 was done for Jesus Christ. All right? One of the attributes of God is his goodness. The definition of what is good is God. Um, another attribute of God is love. Uh, if you want the definition of what love is, it's God. I mean, that's the ultimate definition of what love is. And you add that with all the other attributes of God. Certainly, God wants to show his goodness, and God wants to show his love. And that's why he created this world. Okay. At the same time... God in his infinite wisdom knew, because he has given us free choice, that man would make the wrong choices and would need a form, a scheme of redemption. And of course, not long after he created heavens and earth, um, that scheme of redemption was began in Genesis 3 and verse 15. It talks about how that uh, there will be uh, one born of a woman who would bruise the head of Satan and Satan would bruise his heel. That's the very first verse that's talk, that's talk, that gets us going down the path through the scheme of redemption. His scheme of redemption was brought about by Jesus Christ. And when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he fulfilled the ultimate plan of God. And the only way the ultimate plan of God that shows both his goodness and his love is found in that cross. And so what Paul is driving at here is the reason why the world was ultimately created, it was created for Jesus Christ so Jesus Christ could show the ultimate goodness and love of God. Everything around us, why this whole world exists, looks back to the cross and looks forward to the cross from Genesis 1-1 because that's the ultimate. And then after that happens and... Jesus, as we're going to talk about here in just a moment, and I don't think it's by accident, he talks about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. After that happens, all of creation is hurtling toward that destination when this world is going to be destroyed, and then the plan that God had put in place through Jesus Christ is going to come to its ultimate fulfillment. I believe that's what he's talking about when he says, all things were created by him and for him. This whole world was an opportunity to show what Jesus Christ was going to do. Uh, without it, there had been no need for it. And, of course, as I said, Paul does a wonderful job of building on things he's already said. And he's already brought out the point in verse 14 that it's through him that we have redemption, through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. And... The only way that's going to happen is through uh, creation. But any questions or comments? Anything anybody would like to add to that? Okay, and you're, of course, welcome to disagree. Don't mind that at all. Okay. Um, <clears throat> but then, 
in verse 17 to drive the point home that he cannot be the kind of person that the Gnostics thought he was, that he was uh, something less than God. In verse 17 it says, And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. Um, you read that verse and you say, well, Paul is just you know, making some of the same statement he's already made before. But you need to look at that word before. What does it mean when he says he is before all things? All right, he's saying he's God. There you go. He wasn't created. That word there is an interesting word in the Greek. It's a word that can be used two ways, and there's arguments among people how Paul is using it here. It can either mean he is before all things as far as rank is concerned, which would be emphasizing what he's already said, or he's talking about before in time, as far as the time continuum or whatever. And as Michael has correctly observed, if he was before all things, that means he existed before anything was created right? And if he is the catalyst that created everything, that would make sense. Now, you've often heard this definition before. Um, We've talked about this in other classes and whatnot, but the very definition of a God means that God would have to exist always. In order for something to be a God, by its very definition, There never can ever be a time that this God didn't exist. They would always have to be eternal. That is the main attribute of defining what God is. Here's the question. We've talked about this before. Why is that the case? Exactly right. If there is ever a time that a deity didn't exist and they came into existence, that means something more powerful than them created them, and therefore they're not really God. God has to be eternal. There's no other way around it or else it's not God. And that's one of the things that he's driving at here. He is saying when Paul uses these words, he, and he is before all things, meaning that he is the one that existed before anything was created. But then he adds to it, and by him all things The King James Version has the word consist. Um, What else do people have? That's not a very good word there. Hold together. The actual Greek word is hold together. Um, Some translations, I think, have sustained. Um, But there's the idea that not only is he the creator, he he wasn't a deist. You know, some of our forefathers were deists that believed that God created the world, kind of wound up the clock and just let it run. He's saying even right now as you and I are sitting here, guess who's holding this world together with his creative power? It's Christ. Christ is God. Christ is the one that's over all this and still is over all this, which is flying once again right in the face of what uh, these particular false teachers believe when they believe that Jesus Christ was either a demigod or he was a vision or he was uh, some kind of... um, Ghost that wandered around. He wasn't a real man. Uh, he, he, he is God. And for the first time in history, even though it flies in the face of what the Gnostics believe, matter and spirit came together 
in human form, and his name is Jesus Christ. Take that, you Gnostics. That's basically what he's saying. Now, it would make sense to me that if Jesus is the firstborn, if he has the highest rank possible, if he is God, if he is a creator of everything, if everything under the sun owes him for creation and also for sustainability, he's the one that holds it all together. If he is indeed God, well, what ultimately would also be the case here on this earth about his relationship with the church? He's over the church too. If he's got the preeminence over all things, wouldn't the church fall under all, all things? Now, the next question is, Why do you think at this particular point in time did Paul introduce this idea in verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Why do you think now in this discussion, as I said, Paul keeps building and building and building on different thoughts. Why now throw the church in here? That's the point exactly. If he is God, and he is the creator of everything, and he is the one that is the, the highest rank, the firstborn, given that assignment by God, then why in the world do you want to listen to those idiots that saying that they are the ones that have special knowledge and have the final authority when it's God's Son, Jesus Christ, who has the final authority? And that's why more than likely he, threw, he brings this into discussion now. Um, because it almost looks out of place in his discussion, but he's trying to make the point that he's actually been building up to. That not only is Jesus Christ a God, not only is he the creator of everything, but guess what? He's got the final authority in the church, not you guys. Yes, Karen? Well, there is, and the way that it works, the, the best explanation of how this came about where there became a pecking order, if you will, is if you read the second chapter of, of Philippians and how that Christ, who thought it not be robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, came, took on the form of a servant and became a man. And then you, you get to the very end of that very section. It says because of what he's done, God has made him given him glory and given him a name above every name, that at the knee of Jesus Christ, every, every knee should bow and every tongue should claim that, that he is indeed Lord. He took a subordinate position, then God put him over everything. Yeah, but Jesus made that choice. Yeah, when we, I don't know if you all remember when we studied the book of Philippians, how we spent a lot of time talking about that um, and how that came about. And the Holy Spirit was, is part of the, the messengers, of the, part of God's Spirit that is a messenger. I don't, of course, a lot smarter people than me have studied the Trinity and don't fully understand it. So. All right, so he goes on in verse 18 and says, He is the head of the body, the church. Now, I haven't brought this out before, but it needs to be brought out now because we're hitting the conclusion of, of this point that he is making here about his preeminence. And he's going to get back into um, what he's done through the cross. You know, he started verse 14 about how we have forgiveness of sins through his blood. Um, he, it's like he, he builds upon that, and he's going to come back to that in verse uh, 20. But in verse 18, 
I want you to notice what, he, what phrase he uses that he's been using all along, and maybe we've, we've missed it a little bit. But notice it says in verse 18, and he is the head of the body. You notice earlier it says, and he is before all things. Um, you notice verse 15, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature? That's saying a lot. What is it saying? Do you have your hand up? Oh, okay. Um, help me out here. What is it? What's the, why is that important? He's saying he is. Okay, so it's not that he was. Um, it's the idea that this is something that's happening right now. And, um, you know, a couple Sundays ago we had a lesson about Jesus' um, argument about uh, with the with the Sadducees about the resurrection, and I said, uh, they don't, there's two things that they didn't understand. They didn't understand the scriptures nor the power of God. And one of the things that Jesus brought out to them, they says, God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that's kind of the same thing that he is doing here. He's saying he is, uh, he exists, and he is real, and he is doing all these things now. He is, um, you know, he's not creating so the point is that he is in that his, he is someone that exists. He is the eternal one. But he says he is uh, the head of the body. After saying, using the phrase he is four times, he says he is the head of the body. Now he's trying to get us to picture something very important here. In Ephesians, he's talking about something very similar, but he uses this phraseology in Ephesians, and he says he is the head of the church, which is his body. But here he flips it. In Colossians, he says he is the head of the body, the church. Now, you might look at that and think, well, that really doesn't seem like you should make a big deal about that. And when he says he refers to the church as being his body, but here he refers to the body being his church. Well, why did he do that? I mean, why, why make a, a change in words in one book and do it differently in this book? Well... In the book of Ephesians, he's emphasizing um, that the church is the body of Christ, but here he wants to make sure he makes a connection between the head and the body, and that body being the church. And if you think about what I said a few moments ago, what's he doing, Michael? Why is he emphasizing he's the head of the body, which is the church, as opposed to he's the head of the church, which is the body? Okay. And that's emphasized both in Ephesians and Colossians. But I think here he's emphasizing the fact that the head is what controls the body. You know, I don't care who you are, it's your head that can t- tells your body what to do. You know, if I reach out and just smack Scott as hard as I can, you know, people think I've lost my mind, but it's still my head that told my body to do that, you know? Yeah, I just, just it took off. Um, if um, I have no control over it as far as being able to manipulate it, there may be some people who believe they can, but my heart just keeps beating, keeps beating, keeps, keeps beating, keeps beating. And I'm not thinking about, hey, keep beating, keep beating, but still it's my head up here that's telling that heart to keep beating. That's why it keeps, it keeps that rhythm. And the point that Paul is, of course, driving home that we've already talked about earlier is he's dealing with the Gnostics He's basically saying that the authority of the church doesn't rely with these false teachers, with these know-it-alls, if you will. 
These men who claimed they had special knowledge and was changing the whole landscape of Christianity, he's saying the final authority is Jesus Christ. He's the head. He's the one that controls what the body does. And if you're not letting him be the head of the body, then that's not his body. That's, that's the logic out of it. If it's his head and he's not controlling this body, then that body doesn't belong to him because it's, he's not the head. And so he's saying to the Gnostics, if you're claiming that Jesus Christ is not who he says he was and he's not the final authority in the church, then what you're, what you're putting forth in is a body that has a different head evidently because that head doesn't belong to Jesus Christ and he is the head of the body, the church that people should want to be a member of. And notice also in the text it talks about how he is the head of the body not bodies. Uh, there's only one body. And the ultimate one body is the body that pays attention to the head. Um, it's so funny when you read uh, commentators that are denominational and, and you're reading this particular verse and they have to go in this long explanation of how that, you know, denominations aren't wrong because they're just um, bodies that are a part of the body that Christ is the head. Well, that makes no sense. If Christ is the final authority, if he is the head, then there can only be one body. And there can't be little bodies that come out of it. That would be grotesque and look weird. Um, you know, every now and then you see something weird on a movie or even hear a scientific journal about somebody who has an extra child growing out of their shoulder or something like that. that that's just not pleasant to look at. Um, and that's kind of what denominationalism is saying, that we can have all these different bodies that come out of the main body. But the problem is, if you're really making Jesus Christ the head of the body and making him the final authority, then you're just going to be that body. Um, denominations come from the idea of somebody holding on to a particular denominational view that makes them separate and distinct from other denominations. That's why they're that denomination. Or they have a particular founder or, or person who originated that particular denomination and their particular views. Uh, and then they follow that person's views or they follow that person's manual or catechism or, or prayer book or whatever. But the point that Paul, of course, is making here, and he's making it to the Gnostics, but he's making it to anybody that wants something different than just New Testament Christianity. If Jesus Christ is truly the head of the body, he is the final authority. You don't need anything else. And, of course, that final authority for us today is um, the Scriptures. Um, anything before we move on? Yes, Flo. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's like oftentimes when I'm talking to someone and I just ask them, I said, why can't I be a member of the same church that Peter was a member of? Why can't I be a member of the same church Paul was a member of? Why can't I just simply be a Christian? Why do I have to be a certain kind of Christian that has an extra name to it? And I'm not picking on any denomination, but why do I have to be a Baptist Christian or a Methodist Christian or some other kind of Christian? Why can't I just be a Christian? That's all they were in the New Testament. And you get that when all you have, if you take out all the man-made doctrines and pleas and creeds and whatnot and just simply have Jesus Christ as the head, that's what you're going to have. And he goes on and says, you know, to emphasize this point, he says, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, 
Now, what does it mean when it says he is the beginning? Okay, nothing was before him again, and that's the idea. But I think we're stuck on the word beginning in the sake of time as opposed to something else. Yes, Michael? Okay, all right. The word here for beginning is a word that is probably be better translated the source of. Uh, if I begin to write a letter, I am the source of that letter, right? Um, that's the kind of the idea. He is the source of the church, as, my, as Michael was saying. Um, we almost think when we think of the beginning, he, we think that somehow or another there's a time element there, and there is a time element there. But Paul's emphasizing that he is the source of the church and emphasizing the point that he is the head of the body. You should pay attention to him because he's the head, but he's also from which the church came from. You know, he's the, one, he's the reason why the church exists. And then he goes on and says, the firstborn from the dead. And he's obviously talking about his resurrection But we need to be careful here again because the word firstborn there is the exact same word that we have in verse 15 when it talks about the firstborn of every creature. Now, I've even heard preachers in the church sometime say, say, look at that verse, and they'll say, well, what what Paul means there, he was the very first one to rise from the dead. No, he wasn't. He was not. There were others who rose from the dead. And if you say something to them about that, well, they say, well, that's, he was the first one to be rise from the dead that didn't die again. Well, that's true, but that's not what the text is saying. It's the exact same word that's used in verse 15, and it's talking about rank once again. It's talking about preeminence. In fact, that's what this whole section is about, is rank and preeminence. And he's talking about the fact that he is the resurrected one from the dead who is the highest ranking, who has preeminence and is over all the dead. And, um, and don't miss something else here in the text. Oh, we've run out of time, but since we're in it anyway, we'll come back to it more. But notice it says the firstborn from the dead, not the firstborn of the dead. That's an important distinction. Among. And the idea there is, the Greek word there for, for from is the idea that he has the preeminence because of something that resulted from death. Jesus died and rose again. He established something that gave him the preeminence or the firstborn of all the dead. And we'll talk more about that next week because our time is up. And Karen said I had to quit, start quitting on time.